A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, their careers jumped to light speed. Welcome to Star Wars Week on Biography. Tonight, George Lucas. He went against the grain in Hollywood and created his own empire. Hello, I'm Samuel L. Jackson. This past weekend, millions flocked to see Attack of the Clones, in which I played Jedi Knight Mace Windu. Working with George Lucas on the last two Star Wars movies has been a highlight of my career. George's attention to detail is uncanny. On Attack of the Clones, I was called in for four reshoots because for Lucas, it's always about making things better. I think George decided 25 years ago that movies didn't look and sound as good as they ought to and that there had to be a better way. First impression was, I hate you. <laughs> I hate that guy, man. He's so much better than I am. He's taken these old, ancient stories and projected them out beyond our imagination. And that's genius. Last points this is Jason. And this is Gabe. We we're all in for a treat this week because we are talking about the 2002 AE biography on George Lucas. It's called Creating an Empire. These AE biographies, you're probably familiar with them. If you had cable, what, in like the 90s, early 2000s, they're still being played, right? I don't. Are they? I don't know, but I do remember, yeah, there was a period of time, because this was, there was cable, but there wasn't as much cable, and there wasn't really the, I guess there was the internet, but not as much of the internet, that these biography specials were a big deal, I feel like. Or at least I saw lots of ads for them. I remember watching them and just being less like, this is fascinating. I don't know, like, I'm watching an A&E biography on the Queen of England fascinating and they like will sum up you know like a whole life in one hour it's like oh this is cool this is guy I, I feel like i learned something today and i think this was before a and e just started like making tv shows right like there wasn't breaking bad yet and like a and e just making shows it was just fancy stuff with like master like masterpiece theater and in biographies or it was like when the history channel was still about history and not about ufos and it was you know simpler simpler time I remember there were like days and days and days where like all they would just run is like one biography special after another. 
And they were kind of fascinating. They were kind of interesting, especially anything that ever had to do with movies or music or anything. Be like, oh, this is cool. It was like watching Wikipedia <laughs> before, before there was Wikipedia. If you just wanted random, probably true facts about random stuff, you could watch an A&E biography and get it all in an hour. And the A&E biographies, they won Emmy Awards. They won Peabody Awards. And literally, there was an A&E biography for everyone, from, like, Gandhi to, like, Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. Like, just across, anybody you could think of who was interesting from any period of time, there was an A&E biography on them. But in May of 2002, the year of Attack of the Clones, A&E dedicated three days to what they called their Star Wars week, May 20th through the 23rd, 2002. On May 20th, they played the George Lucas one, which we are going to be watching here in this episode called Creating an Empire. The next day was Mark Hamill, and the day after that was Carrie Fisher. And I looked, and all of them are on YouTube. It's kind of fascinating. I was like, man, what's the Mark Hamill one like? Yeah, is it the same length as the George Lucas one? They're a little shorter because the Lucas one, which we're about to dive into, is 90 minutes. So when it was on TV, when it was on A&E, it was probably like a full two hours. But the the Mark Hamill and the Carrie Fisher ones are at like about 42 minutes. They would have been about an hour on TV. That, That seems reasonable. I was like, man, just those three, they could have kept going. Like, this is 2002. They could have done, with Star Wars week, they should have done one on Ben Burt. Yeah. Well, how did they not do one on Harrison Ford? There had to have been a Harrison Ford one. Unless he said, you can make one of me, but you can't show it during Star Wars week. (laughs) They had to reach out to him. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, you can show it anytime before May 20th or anytime after May 23rd. But those four days are off limits. So many. 2002. Yeah, they could have done so many. They could have done a Rick McCallum one. That would have been great. Yeah. There should have been a Christopher Lee one. Was there a, a Peter Cushing biography? Probably. Just go nuts. Play them all. Gary Kurtz, the A&E biography. John Williams? John Williams. There must be a John Williams one, right? Probably, probably. But what's crazy is, I think until like not that long ago, both you and I didn't even know this existed. Like, I think we just stumbled upon this as we were doing research for some other episode last year. And we were like, wait, what is this? Well, yeah, because I remember there being A&E biographies, and I maybe remember there being a George Lucas one, but, you know, the Attack of the Clones time was weird for me because I know at the time I I moved into a new apartment. I didn't have cable. I, like, just had an antenna. And that whole summer I had, like, started in a new band that was, like, playing, like, two, three times a week, like, through the summer. Like, I was just really busy. And I was super excited for Attack of the Clones. And if I had time for Star Wars, it would be to go watch Attack of the Clones. And I think I just totally missed out on these when they came out and then forgot about them. So I've never seen this. It's shocking to me, too, because while you were doing that, I was in an apartment where we had cable and I was making my own Attack of the Clones compilation tape <laughs> of just recording everything Attack of the Clones that was on cable during May of 2002. Did I know that this existed? Maybe I wasn't paying attention to A&E. I don't, or maybe that was in a cable bracket that we didn't have or something. Because I feel like I'd be like really into this. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> even if it wasn't Attack of the Clones build up time like... 
oh, there's a uh, two-hour-long George Lucas documentary? Yeah, of course I'm going to watch that. And this is the week Attack of the Clones came out. Like, Attack of the Clones was like, what, Wednesday night was the first show. This was Monday. This is like, oh, my God. Like, we're going crazy. Well, and, you know, we should talk about, too, this is, of course, like we said, this is May of 2002, which we've talked about several times in the past. Like, a lot of people, like, talk about, oh, like, right around when Star Wars came out or right around when The Phantom Menace came out. There was a lot of things about George Lucas, but nothing really like 2002. Now, 2002 was this crazy time because... Phantom Menace had been out, so everyone kind of knew that new Star Wars was really wild. But the promotion for Attack of the Clones was like, Star Wars is the coolest thing in the world. And all the promotion is just going to be like, what's the coolest stuff we can do about Star Wars? And who are like the coolest people that we can have talk about Star Wars? There was all the stuff at MTV at Skywalker Ranch, which is insane. There's the legendary, legendary Master P interview with George Lucas. There's Master P interviewing Hayden Christensen. It's Master P, and I'm about to go find out the dark side to Mr. John Lucas. You know what Yoda, was he, was he high or something? On this one? Yeah. No. What is lizard, man? <laughs> I made it off my shoulder. Yeah, you got, carry lizards he, with you, huh? He's been hanging out with me. I, I found him. So you a lizard, man? Someone keep me company, you know? Yeah. Well, and there's the Carrie Fisher George Lucas interview in the in the library at the ranch, which is absolutely bonkers. We did a whole episode on it way back in the day. And somehow in there, yeah, there was A&E Biography Week, which, yeah, the George Lucas one, at least, was brand new. They were they were covering all the bases. Like, cable television had nonstop Star Wars Attack of the Clones coverage leading up to the big release. And this, what we're about to watch, Creating an Empire, it's like a combination, like, documentary and interview thing going on. There's a lot of, I think Harry Smith is the name of the guy who is interviewing George Lucas. And I think he's also the narrator. And we're going to watch this live. We're going to have the audio playing in the background. It's almost like we're doing a running commentary for it, but almost not because we will probably stop and pause it and talk about stuff. So it could could get wild. But... I think we both highly recommend watching this. Like after you listen to us, like talk through the whole thing, watch it on your own. We'll have the link to it on YouTube in the show notes, because this any biography has photos of George Lucas that I don't know how they got these photos. There's some wild, wild photos of George Lucas throughout this biography. And if you watch in the end credits, some of the photos were provided by Ben Burt, which makes me think. I, can, can you just imagine Ben Burt watching A&E biographies all day? I was one on Charlie Chaplin. Oh, what a treat. <laughs> They're just always playing in his office in the background. He's got some special like slippers that he puts on for watching his favorite shows. 
That's what he needed the bike for. He had to get his work done as quickly as possible so he had extra time to watch biographies. Are you doing one on George? Let me give you all my my secret collection of George Lucas photos I've been saving. Well, you know, 2002 really was like it's the year of Ben Burt. Attack of the Clones is the the ultimate Ben Burt movie. So, you know, he was he was on fire. So maybe he was uh, cutting together slideshows of George Lucas photos, too, while he was at it. It was a secret project, along with re-editing those droids episodes for DVD, which nobody ever talks about. (laughs) Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to start watching it. There's some great intro stuff with Samuel Jackson wearing a long sleeve shirt with an enormously wide collar and a blue screen set behind him. We're going to skip over all of that. We're going right to the meat. So here we go. All right, let's uh, do it on one. So here we go. Three, two, one. One of the questions that people ask me a bit is that, uh, you know, why do you make movies? And I say, I make movies because I have to. I couldn't live without making movies. Look at that hair. I think we missed that one in the in the Lucas hair, the like completely round hair. George Walton Lucas Jr. was born so to George and Dorothy We're get this Lucas, many baby a successful businessman and his wife. It was like newborn George Lucas. Yeah. On May 14, 1944. Yeah. Yeah. Modesto was a small rural town in Northern California, the kind of place where everyone knew everyone, and nowhere was more than 10 minutes away, even on a bike. Modesto, California. Your hometown. Mm-hmm. So wait, okay, is this at Skywalker like, Ranch? When you were Probably. Modesto is... Um, Why wouldn't it be? California, but it really is the Midwest. You know, so I grew up as Midwestern Californian. You know, Modesto was really Norman Rockwell, Boys Life magazine, raking leaves on... I feel like he's always talked about Modesto being like Boys Life magazine, and I don't think anyone is getting that reference besides him. <laughs> George was the third of four children and the only boy... His older Something I really want to talk about is young George Lucas and his ears. <laughs> That's maybe we thought he keeps his power in his hair, but his power has actually always been in his ears. We just saw footage of George Lucas dancing with a fez in his underwear. Sisters looked after George in part because his mother Dorothy was frequently ill. She was a loving mother and very involved with her children. But throughout George's childhood, she suffered from an array of health problems, including kidney trouble and hypertension. I really want to talk about George Lucas's sister's hair. (laughs) It definitely runs in the family. For for those of you not viewing this, George Lucas's sister is talking right now. Your your father had it. Your sister has it. You have that power, too? Like, that's... That's the Lucas family hair. It's huge. It is huge. It is like a mushroom cloud on top of her head. It doesn't even fit in the frame of the screen you're watching. It's luscious and thick. Could you imagine her and George Lucas standing next to each other? It would just be the... No, they can't put them together. Camera would break. Couldn't handle it. I also... You never get this many photos of Father Lucas. And browse around. So I I think that was definitely from my mother. George's father was a self-made man who owned a small stationery and office supply store in Modesto. 
He was strong-willed and very conservative, both politically and physically. Well, my father was a very um, old-fashioned <laughs> guy, you know, small business owner. So he's he's kind of a classic small-town businessman <laughs> who you'd see in a movie. George Sr. was considered quite a taskmaster, <laughs> even among the neighborhood kids. My memory is you never crossed... George Frankenstein. So right now we have George Lucas's childhood friend, whose name is George Frankenstein. My father was... Yeah. Is, that his real, is that his real name? That's like if you got caught somewhere, like somewhere in like when you're a kid, and they're like, what's your name, kid? We're going to call your parents. Like, I'm, I'm George Frankenstein. Little did he know he'd have to keep that name for the rest of his life. Otherwise, he'd get in trouble. <laughs> I've been George Frankenstein for 60 years. I was friends with George Lucas when I was a little kid. I'm George Frankenstein. Well, his other friend is a plumber, so he's just hanging out with Frankenstein and a plumber. Where else can you see George Lucas's birthday cake with, like, little robot men on it? It's like a bunch of little C-3PO's. They just showed George Lucas's birthday cake. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we kind of got known for doing stuff like that. George was creative. He wasn't a, a leader, but he was much more imaginative. And, you know, you look back on it now and you can see he was incredibly imaginative. He always came up with a lot of the ideas. Another activity the boys shared was reading comic books. Mm -hmm. The local newsstand used to give the kids the ones that didn't sell. We'd come home with these bushels full of them. And George used to sit out on my front porch all the time just reading him. One of the things that really came out of him that made a big influence on him and all of us, it was the, the values that were so important of us. There was the, the good guy and the bad guys. And uh, I think that uh, put a pretty strong print on him. When television came to Modesto in the early 50s, George was hooked. He liked to watch westerns. He also loved movie series from the 30s and 40s. Here we go. We're talking Flash, about the serials. Flash Gordon. I never saw anything like them. They must be from another planet. This ray gun ought to stop them. Early on, it was clear George had a fertile imagination. He spent hours sketching. He also wrote little stories. One of them appeared in his third grade yearbook and was a perfect predictor of what was to come. Once upon a time in the land of Zoom. Yeah, where where else can you get Slowpoke? Once upon a time in the land of Zoom. Little boy met a horse. Where are we getting Slowpoke on Disney Plus? Based on characters created by George Lucas. <laughs> Dorothy Elliott, George Lucas' second grade teacher. Dorothy Elliott, when are you coming to Star Wars Celebration? I want George's grade school teachers at a panel at Celebration. That's, that's what people want. None of this new stuff coming out. I don't care about Mando season four. I want to talk to George Lucas's gym teacher. Tell us about him in gym class. Did he run? Did you ever see him run? Yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out if there's any video evidence or photos of him running. I was definitely an underachiever. George's life changed in 1960 when he was 15. The Lucases moved out of town to a ranch set on 13 acres of walnut trees. Now that he was four miles instead of four blocks from his friends, George became somewhat of a loner. He started changing. He started paying more attention to 
records. He was uh, becoming more <laughs> introspective. He started to almost become a little bit of a ruffian, um, you know, starting to follow some of the bad kids. Were you with the wrong crowd? I was with all the crowds. I was little and I was kind of funny. I was little. I was, I was kind of funny. With, and I so I made friends pretty easily. So it was you know it was easy for me to do that. During the first years on the Walnut Ranch, George became a serious music fan. He became, in fact, passionate about rock and roll. Here we go. We're coming into the rock and, and roll era. Rock, rock and roll. roll. People drinking Cokes. Fast cars. Rock and roll. Coca-Cola. By the time he was old enough to get his driver's license, cars were his full-blown obsession. You were a gearhead. What was your first car? Uh, my very first car was a Fiat. A very small um, version of a Fiat. Lucas beefed up his car, and soon he was competing in races and winning I like trophies. This music in the background. He also worked as a It's rock and roll. Social entree for George. With wheels, he was able to go combing his hair down. Era George Lucas. We didn't cover this at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> The f- combing it forward. We didn't. We, that's the thing. You know, we didn't know about this because when we did the the Lucas hair episode, we would have had to have talked about this. We missed entire eras of his hair. We missed like between being a baby and like greaser Lucas. There was street racing, street racing, rock and roll, Coca Cola, Lucas. And George wasn't shy. It seemed like an idyllic life: rock and roll, cruising. Like, honestly, though, who had all these pictures of George Lucas? His sister, probably. A few days yeah. before graduating from high school, George oh, was go. coming home in his Fiat when he was hit by another car. The Fiat rolled about seven or eight times and then wrapped itself around a walnut tree. When they arrived on the scene, I was pronounced dead, and they took me to the hospital to have a doctor do it, and they said, this guy's not dead. And, uh, you know, because my lungs had been crushed, so I wasn't breathing. And I guess my heart beat was extremely weak and they couldn't find it. For my parents it was devastating because it was right at the end of their road. Oh, so he named his daughter after his sister. Oh, yeah. That's really nice. Or whoever his sister was named after. There's another relative. That was her son and it was very, you know, very traumatic. And and most of the kids at school thought I died because it was on the front page of the newspaper. You know, my car was this little mangled hulk that was driven down the main street where I cruised, where all my friends cruised. Suddenly they saw my car on the back of, I mean, it couldn't even be towed. It just had to be, it was just a, a pile of rubble. Everybody thought I'd been killed. So um, it was like almost starting a new life. George spent two weeks in the hospital after his accident and another four months recovering at home. His high school diploma was delivered to his bedside. The accident put an end to his dream of becoming a race car driver. But it uh, was the beginning of something The far seduction more shot of George Lucas there, trying to seduce us. There's a very sensual picture of young Lucas for those of you listening along. Yeah, yeah. The, the reborn Lucas is now sensual. I made, I made a pledge when I was in the hospital. I was, was going to be sensual. And my second life from that moment, really from the hospital, I took off and was sort of accelerating ever since. George Lucas had survived a nearly fatal car accident at the age of 18. He thought he'd been given a new lease on life, and in 1962, he decided to go to college, and as he said, 
make something of himself. I wonder if he was is still friends he with his childhood friends. College, yeah, George Frankenstein. Yeah, with Frankenstein and the plumber. Also, they he was really into his creative writing class. They were saying. So what did he write? Where is that? It's in a notebook somewhere. The real journal of the wills. And those things really meant something to him. During his years there, George also pursued a high school interest in photography. Even then, he displayed a remarkable eye. He took some pictures of my of my son and daughter. You know, he turned them back to back, and, and uh, he sort of posed and made this composition, and he even signed it. At that time, he was... Um, I think he was experimenting quite a bit with uh, photography. And when George graduated from junior college, he thought he would apply to art school. My dad just had a fit. You know, he said, you are not going to become an artist. I'm not going to have an artist in this family. You know, artists don't make any money. Uh, you're never going to be able to support yourself. There was for, you, for all you Blast Points listeners, that's why Gabe and I both went to art school. To <laughs> because George Lucas thought about doing it once. So that's that was our that was our inspiration. Yeah, we had to do it for real. And everything his dad said was true. <laughs> so he convinced Lucas to apply to USC Film School because he reasoned George liked photography, and that good time, seemed though. like good filmmaking, yeah. didn't it? All worked out in the end. Still, yeah, everything worked out. USC fine. was a university. George's father was willing to pay for it. Lucas applied, and much there to his the, amazement, uh, the was goatee. Yeah, we're entering the, the goatee era of George Lucas here. The USC, U.S. goatee. You know, uh, none of us in a little town of 8,000 really knew what film school was. So I think it was more of a dream. Lucas moved to Los Angeles in the fall of 1964. I wonder how much John Plummer really... Was he really involved in all this? I wonder. Maybe. found himself a roommate. We were both outsiders coming to Los Angeles to go to USC film school. Okay, let's really talk about this. Because this is Randall Kleiser, who was George's college roommate. What did Randall Kleiser go on to do? He directed Grease. Sometimes we talk about Grease and Star Wars being the same thing, and you think we're joking, but maybe we're not. I still stand, but we still need to do that episode, how... Ray and Ben Solo, sequel trilogy. It's pretty much Greece. It's Greece in space. Space Greece. Where's the Ben Solo I met at the beach? Well, I do not know. Maybe try the yellow pages. I like that your Kylo Ren showed up right when Malter Merch was talking, who's pretty much has the same voice as Adam Driver. <laughs> There's no future in it. There are no jobs for any of you. Don't do this. If you, if you We've never now, seen you Walter Murch and Adam Driver in the same place but at the George same time. That no, never have. And decided to stay. You get to USC film school. What did you become aware of immediately? Within one semester, I was completely hooked. I mean, this film was my life. Suddenly cars were not important to me. Nothing was important to me except film. Because I got in there and I realized I knew what I was doing. It was like Mark, I was at home. Being sensual again. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. With the best feeling in the world. Post-accident sensuality. George Lucas is always a good-looking guy, but I think late 60s is like his most conventionally good-looking era. George's first production course at USC was in animation. Even among all those students, it didn't take long for him to make his mark. I like that Walter Murch is just credited as college friend. Well, I think maybe they are assuming if you're watching him. No, it's on A&E. No one knows who Walter Murch is unless 
So yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. There's a little more to the bio. Yeah, because like if they showed Harrison Ford, did it say former employee? <laughs> Some guy that he knows. <laughs> oh, here is a. Yeah, uh, here's a look at life. Yeah. Te- technically, like we were saying last week, technically the first animated Star Wars or animated Lucasfilm. George Lucas thing. Yeah. Before there was even Lucasfilm, but it was Lucasfilm. Yeah. Um, and it uh, it just completely energized the class uh, looking at this thing. Nobody expected anything like this. And it was really interestingly done with the, with the music. So everyone turned around and said, who did that? <laughs> and it was George. Look at Life went on to win many awards at student film festivals. His other films attracted attention as well. After only a year at USC, this short is really George cool too. I think they just said the name of it, the car racing one. All these George Lucas student films should be on Disney Plus. They should. Highly sophisticated. He had a good graphic sense. He had hey, here's Haskell Wexler. Mm-hmm. To see design, George was. Uh, Who is credited as a cinematographer, not George Lucas's friend? <laughs> Just question marks under his name. George's films were never character-driven and used very few actors. He preferred films about cars, machines, technology. One film he did did star his roommate in a non-speaking role, and it foreshadowed films he would make in later years. The theme of a man escaping his past would appear again and again Mm. in Lucas's work. This movie was called Freiheit, which means freedom Mm. in German, and it concerned a student fleeing East Germany for West Germany. It was in the 60s during the Vietnam War. I'm into the, the escape, escape one life for another. What you know? How many times do we talk about that? Every single episode of Blast Points. I've never seen that one either. That short. I'm into it. More people should be watching the George Lucas student films. That's my opinion. Was able to do something that was artistic but also commercial, and I think that this. Did you see the Fablemans? I've not watched it yet. It's on the list. Should be like. It's, it's like the George Lucas version of Fablemans. It's just people getting shot with <laughs> with voiceovers. <laughs> race cars and people trying to escape one life for another and then race then more race cars. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, with this newfound confidence came the conviction that George's way was the only way. There simply was no other. The very first time I met George himself was in the darkroom of the uh, of the lab, and we'd been given an assignment to develop, take some pictures, still pictures, and develop them. And uh, as it goes through the various stages, I was in the final stage, uh, and I heard this voice from behind me saying, "You're doing it wrong," which was uh, very typical of George at that time. He knew how to do it, and he was going to make sure everyone knew that he knew that. If George was arrogant, it stemmed from the fact that he knew he was finally in the right place at the right time. So you were at USC, you're in film school, and... This is trying to figure out what's on the table in front of them next to the flowers. Oh my God, that's the Dejaric table. Is it? It's not. No, look at it. Next time they show it, that's the Phil, Tipp- that's the Phil Tippett monsters. I swear to God it is. That's all I thought about. That's all I did. Um, you know, I'd be working all day, all night, you know, living on... Chocolate bars and coffee. And, He's talking about living you know, on chocolate bars. It's real. 
we, we don't make it up. It's not a joke. Who would remain lifelong friends. It was a close-knit group marked by an easy camaraderie and bonded by a shared love of film. Sometimes George and his friends went to five movies on a weekend. Except for the film-related Who is taking this many pictures George of George Lucas? Like, right now, folks, they're showing a picture of young, dashing George Lucas just on a phone. In fact, I need more chocolate bars. <laughs> we spent a lot of time together, and, and I would always try to go out to parties and to clubs and stuff, and George would usually stay upstairs in his room drawing. He'd be drawing these little star troopers, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I kept saying, well, why don't we go out to a club? And he said, no, no. George was always quiet. Randall Kleiser, let's go out to a club. Oh, I'm going to stay in my room and draw star troopers. He's just sitting in his room. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of night. <laughs> you just want to stay in and draw star, tro- star-, star troopers? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you get some Cokes, I'll get the chocolate bars. They're ready to go. And when George graduated from USC in 1966 with a B.A. in cinema, his parents were there to watch. One thing they knew for certain, he would not be returning to Modesto. George Lucas was 22 when he graduated from USC Film School in the summer of 1966. The first job he got was editing a film for the United States Information Agency. Oh, here about we go. Trip President Johnson we know who's coming in Asia. here. Lucas was yeah. glad to have the job, yet he bristled at what he saw as interference from the director. The director would come over and say, you can't cut this this way, you got to cut this way, and I really don't like this, you know. I want to, because at that point I was really wanting to be an editor and a cameraman, and I wanted to do cinema verite documentary films. In the course of that summer that I was actually doing this, um, I sort of said, you know, maybe I want to be a director. I don't want people to tell me what to do. While working on the film, George met an editing assistant named Marcia Griffin. They became friends and eventually began to date. Most of their dates were at the movies. One of the things they shared was sunglasses based on the photos. <laughs> their relationship soon became. I love all these rare. This right now, folks. Also, they're showing all these rare photos of Marsha, Marsha Griffin, aka Marsha Mar- Mar- Lucas. See how is John Plummer was still in touch with all this? As a couple, I guess uh, it was very supportive. They had a mission together. What they wanted to do. It seemed like it was a very good relationship. Marsha was very opinionated uh, and had very good opinions. Yeah, at least Walter Murch was like, was there. <laughs> Maybe Plummer was just peeking in the window. George, I'm still here. He had creative arguments between them for the good. While working on the film about President Johnson, George had gone back to USC film school as a graduate student. He started working as a teaching assistant in a class of Marine and Navy cameramen. Because they had an unlimited supply of color film and equipment, George enlisted them to help him make his new movie, THX 1138-4EB. There's a thread. There's a thread in your life, though. Oh, Uh, it is. It's it's not a... It's like an artsy version of it. It's it's like a... Okay, so they just showed the wide shot, right, folks? And next to the flowers, it's, it's like a... Like a small round, like end table, but the the jaric monsters are just on top of it. So I wonder if they're like setting up the shot. And he was like, "Got to put my favorite, my favorite buddies in there." Well, is that the real ones, or are they like wooden sculptures of it? Didn't I don't know. We're gonna ask, have to ask Spina, but didn't like 
they make special ones that he had on his desk or something there was something about that oh he did have some of them on yeah he did have some of them maybe yeah we'll have to find out now at least for eb was on the thx the director's cut the dvd it's on youtube too it is on oh yeah that's the thing i think all of these shorts are on youtube splash the film won the top prize in the National Student Film Festival and was widely seen not only by other film students, but by studio executives and film critics. One young filmmaker was stunned when he first saw it at a film oh, festival. Oh, look at this. Young, young Steve, Stevie Spielberg. Friend. <laughs> so it said Steven Spielberg underneath. Friend. You heard of this guy, Steven Spielberg? He's George Lucas's friend. That's kind of, it's kind of beautiful. It doesn't say childhood friend. It should, it really, it should say best friend. Yeah, it should say best friend. Soulmate. George Lucas. My first impression was, I hate you. <laughs> I hate that guy, man. He's so much better than I am. What a great movie, you know. How can I ever make a movie that great? And, you know, and George was really friendly. There should guy, be you know, The Fableman's hey, Part 2 that's that just about how are you? young Spielberg meeting young <laughs> Lucas. Fableman. <laughs> just hit the ass off. The friendship actually began with a handshake. The success of THX helped Lucas win a six-month apprenticeship at Warner Brothers Studio. The only film Warner Brothers had in production was a musical, Finian's Rainbow. The director was a 25-year-old phenom named Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, enter Francis, Francis Ford Coppola. Here we go. How old is Coppola? 25? He looks like he's 40. <laughs> he's been, he was 40 for 15 years. For the times, from film school into professional filmmaking. Well, it's important to remember that in those days, film directors... See, Francis Ford Coppola is director. His, his, his co-title is director. It doesn't say friend. Maybe they're not friends anymore. I think they are. So when I saw George, it was sort of like seeing one of my own or, you know, you know someone oh, more This picture is incredible. <laughs> George Lucas with a goatee and his hair won't even fit in the picture. It's classic Lucas. He's flirting with the idea of a beard which is fascinating. None of these young Lucas photos that we've seen, he has a beard. Well, it's because he hadn't met Francis yet. Right. And here we have goateed Lucas. I mean, that, that's a whole other topic that we should talk about sometime. When did he decide on the beard? It, it's got to be after hanging out with Coppola. Notice also none of those pictures of young Stevie Spielberg. He did not have a beard either. He came, we were making Finian's Rainbow, and one day I, I was I was working on the show, and I kept seeing a skinny kid with a beard, and he was always looking. <laughs> yeah. I, told him, I said, well, you know, I said, who's that? And he said, well, he's observing you. And while he was working on The Rain People, George captured the experience in a Cinema Verity documentary about the movie's You gotta hand production. it to George Lucas Crane and Empire, film. though, because we're a half hour in just about now. And they haven't even, they, they're not like cashing in on just Star Wars. They're really taking their time. They're talking about Finian's Rainbow. Yeah. No, because, yeah, think about it. This is 20, 2002. So there's only, there, there had only been Phantom Menace. Like, there wasn't the whole, like, second age of George Lucas being a big deal. turn brought to the table a technical vision and expertise that Coppola lacked. You know, I used to tell him things like, George, I want every day you to come up with a brilliant idea. 
at your assignment. And every day he would come up with a brilliant idea. So you know, I very quickly <laughs> understood that this was a, a person. He might be a man, he might be a robot, but he talks through a speaker. He has a knob on his chest. <laughs> the banking clan. <laughs> Write it down. Don't forget. I got a pocket full of these, Francis. Brilliant ideas. So, uh, there was a kind of uh, mutual uh, joining of these specialties. After the filming of The Rain People, Coppola and Lucas cooked up an audacious concept to start their own film company. They would leave Hollywood and create their own film community in San Francisco. But soon their dreamy ideals... I love ideals the, the, would the connection, the though, from Zoetrope to Lucasfilm. Right. That it really is, like, his version of it and kind of... He made it work where it didn't work the first time. But it's the same idea. It's John Cordy's barn, but bigger. And Skywalker Ranch and kind of everything that still exists with his crazy dream he had. And well, and with what this this thought right here that he's talking about with him and Francis, they're outside, yeah, outside the system filmmaking. Part of the Hollywood community. We are not going to make movies in Hollywood. We're not going to have anything to do with that. We're, we're about something completely different. Personal filmmaking, that was a phrase we used a lot. It was uh, personal film was something that you wrote and directed about things that maybe you didn't fully understand that the filmmaking would answer. Uh, that would be um, not just the repeating of a genre film over and over again to feed a money machine, but rather to try to make films that would shed light on, on life. But filmmaking wasn't all that George had so in mind. This. Okay, had a wedding Fo- the, the a wedding of George and Marsha, he got married with a full beard. Yeah. I think standing... John Plummer's who's standing next to him in the wedding picture, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. So he was at the wedding. Yeah, it wasn't John Frankenstein. It was, uh, friends, it was a terrific time. Immediately after if the we had wedding, access to Lucas time travel, would you go to George and Marsha's wedding? Yeah, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't you? If you could, why wouldn't you? Yeah, I would go. What did they, yeah, what did they eat? I want to know what they ate. Just, just eavesdrop, just eavesdrop. Maybe Frankenstein gave a speech. Maybe. film school. Coppola had secured a deal with Warner Brothers. Zoetrope would deliver a package of seven youth-targeted movies in the low-budget but high-profit tradition. They're going to love THX 1138. There was one catch, <laughs> it's, it's a crowd-pleaser. Like it's going to be a hit. Repay any money they'd been advanced. THX, a feature film version of George's student film, was American Zoetrope's first movie. Like the original, the commercial version of THX was fairly off the wall. While there were actors, the real stars of the film were the graphics and sound effects. The graphics! (laughs) I heard the graphics are great in this new one. (laughs) My favorite thing in THX 138 is the cool graphics. (laughs) Check out the graphics. When a rough cut of the film was finished, Coppola flew to Los Angeles to show it to Warner Brothers. They hated it. They thought it was uncommercial and just plain weird. They're not lying. What did they do to your movie? Well, they saw it. They didn't understand it at all. I mean, they were completely confused by it. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. And eventually they cut about five minutes out of it. 
I was very angry. Well, this was George's. Um, oh, Walter got promoted to co-writer of THX. <laughs> Things are changing. And so George spent a, a season in hell because this was his baby. This was his very first film, and he felt that the studio was mangling it. The movie did finally get released in 19. It's too bad we never talk about THX one three eight. No, would we really should talk about achieve it more. a kind of cult status. I think the reason that THX 1138 isn't or wasn't popular... And we have Peter Travers from Rolling Stone here. The magazine, not the band. Uh, It was heavy. It was intellectual, the killer word for any kind of successful movie at the time. Coppola and Lucas were crushed by THX's reception. But what was ultimately far more damaging was that Warner Brothers canceled the entire American Zoetrope contract. You know, we were young and we were, we were uh, you know, frightened because it's not that they cut a few minutes out of the picture, but that they didn't get it and they didn't get this wonderful group of young people uh, who were going to clearly make the films of the next uh, couple of decades. And they just not only cut 10 minutes out, they cut us out. They rejected every project we had and they basically just... Warner Brothers really us. missed out because now the company had no THX to make. And on top of that... Some good stuff. Though it's always funny to me, like seeing people that try and go out, seek out THX 138 nowadays, and they're just like, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it doesn't go over real well with people sometimes. It's not American graffiti. It was a sort of a pot boiler, soap opera y kind of thing, and it wasn't a very big budget. And, um, and, uh, he said, should I take this? I said, well, I don't think you have any choice. We're in debt. I don't think enough people you know, have seen American you know, Graffiti you either. Get a job. Well, it's interesting. You went to go see T- or, uh, American Graffiti in the theater very recently, right? Yeah, that was just a few months ago. You were the youngest person in the audience, you said, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> it was, most of the people, yeah, were, were much older than me. I think that's the thing, too. I don't think there's a lot of like crossover with Star Wars people an American Graffiti. No, not so much anymore. But it's also like, I don't remember it ever being in a theater anytime recently. But the great thing with American Graffiti is, is that, well, if coming from a Star Wars fan perspective, if you watch it from a Star Wars perspective, in every way, story-wise, style-wise, the way it's shot, the, the sound, the way it uses music, it's, it's, it's all very Star Wars. Yeah. He would make a movie about teenagers in the early 1960s, about cars and cruising, and it would be drawn from his own adolescence in Modesto. What did you want American Graffiti to say? What did you want it to be about? You know, this was in the 70s. You know, drugs had taken over. People didn't cruise anymore. And I said, well, this, this, is, this era is over, so it should be documented. I mean, nobody's ever done a movie about it. I mean, not a realistic movie. And then, uh, you know, thematically, I wanted to do another movie about getting out of town, sort of THX in a different form. Escaping. Escaping uh, a self-imposed environment. Escaping a self-imposed wrong. environment. Prison of the mind. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, I was thinking I could wait a year, you know, go to city for a while. You chicken thing. Oh, wait a minute. After all we went through to get accepted, we're finally getting out of this turkey town, and now you want to crawl back into your cell, right? 
I'm saying, I bet you watching American Graffiti right now and thinking of Andor, even, I bet it would be like, my God, it's all, it's all the same stuff. Well, in a way, it is almost more like a, you could say like a, like a TV thing because it has so many characters and it's kind of jumping around between the different stories. That it is almost like you could say, you know, Andor does that with it jumping around from the different characters and all the different stories going at the same time. First met him for That's the true. first time, and he true. was sitting behind that desk. He hardly said two words to me. He was just mostly looking at me, which makes for a very uncomfortable audition, you know, when someone's just kind of sizing you up and just looking at you, but not saying, not interacting. George spent months interviewing and auditioning hundreds of mostly unknown actors to get the mix he wanted. He had an uncanny Where is this? Where did this come from? Like, right now we've got American graffiti audition footage. There must be, like, a crazy American graffiti DVD with all this stuff, right? Or is there not? I, I'm pretty sure there is, yeah. I don't have it, if there is. <laughs> <laughs> I need to look harder. Why isn't American Graffiti on uh, Disney Plus? Does Lucasfilm not fully? Is it like an Indiana Jones situation? You know, that's a really good question. Well, who was the Universal? Universal was the yeah the distribution studio. Yeah, so maybe it's a rights thing then. I love the American Graffiti George Lucas look with that Letterman jacket all the time, beard. The only character I really wasn't was Steve. And I have a lot of friends who were the Steves who stayed and just sort of followed the path that was sort of laid out for them. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. The filming of American Graffiti began on June 26, 1972. Because it was a low-budget production, Lucas had only 28 shooting days. And because the action of the film took place over the course of one night, all the shooting had to be done between sunset and sunrise. Night after night took its toll Harrison on Ford, employee. Says actor. Man, I don't. When, when did Harrison Ford have a goatee? <laughs> did he have that in any movie? <laughs> I can't remember. That's what I was just thinking, too. I remember, you know, honestly, just I think a, a couple, maybe a month ago, there was that movie that came out recently where Harrison Ford, like, his, like, girlfriend from when he was young. Like doesn't age, and he meets her again because she's dating his son. Do you know what I'm talking about? I never. My wife was watching this movie, and Harrison Ford had a goatee in it. I was like, "Holy cow! I don't think I've ever seen Harrison Ford in goatee." Was it what lies? But what was, lies? No, it's, a, it's a recent. No, no, no. It was. This was a recent movie, so he had the goatee look now. But this is like. 20 years ago, goatee look. Okay, well, let's really think about this. 2002, he was in K-19, The Widowmaker. 2003, Hollywood Homicide. So that was after this documentary would have been made. So it, could, it was just spare time, Harrison Ford. Yeah, flying planes and getting crazy. That's when he's hanging out with Jimmy Buffett. Lucas didn't particularly enjoy working with actors. Lucas denies it. Yet that impression was quite clear to some of his stars. Before we actually started filming American Graffiti, one of the things that George did was he just kind of had, had a lunch with everybody individually. And it was there that I went a little further saying I'd been accepted to USC and I wanted to be a director. And, and he said, oh, great, great. He said, make sure you do some animation. Get into the animation department if you can. George Lucas in animation, great. it goes all the way back. It's a camera, it's the drawings, 
it's pure cinema. But seriously, you know, think no of like what Ron Howard is saying here with George Lucas's so passion for animation, and there's there's nothing stopping you from doing what you want to do. And then, like what we were talking about last week, like with with Clone Wars, the fact that Lucas was so passionate about doing Clone Wars, paid for the whole thing himself. I'm sure he stayed on as long as he did working on it because he was having so much fun. And then from Clone Wars, everything that Lucasfilm Animation has now become, it's great. It's amazing. The audience went wild with cheering, laughing, and applauding. But again, George's worst fears were coming true. The studio executive hated it. He was livid. He thought that it failed. That it was <laughs> Walter Murch is the editor. <laughs> and uh, he was saying as much to Francis, who was the producer of the film, and George was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, it's THX all over again. They're going to take the film away from me. So I told uh, Universal, George was sort of like, scared, you know, because uh, of this negative reception. I said, hey, I'll write you a check right now and buy the film. You, I said to the guy, I said, you ought to get on your knees and thank this kid for saving your career. In the end, Universal kept the picture, but cut five minutes out of it. They were so displeased with American graffiti, they wanted to release it as a television movie. Not That's so crazy. I don't understand American why, how the they could see, but like, Universal could Gale see American Graffiti and not be like, I don't know, it is a weird movie, I guess, you know? It, that's the thing. It, it is still kind of a weird movie. The structure's kind of weird. But that's the thing, though, too. I mean, the structure in Star Wars is more straightforward, but it's like we talk about all the time. Star Wars is really weird. 1977 original film is bizarre, like shockingly weird. If Star Wars would have bombed and it would have been the only Star Wars movie ever made, it would go down in history as one of the most bizarre movies ever made. Yeah. But American Graffiti, it's, the structure is really weird. Even though it's just like kids cruising and being kids, it's, it's weirder than it seems on the surface when you're watching it. Well, it's it's more like like uh, the films that were coming out of Europe and Italy. It's more, it's not quite A B C. You know, first act, third, second act, third act. It rambles. It's sprawling, kind of. It just kind of. It feels like you're on. It feels like you spend the night with those kids. Like it feels as long as a whole night without feeling too long, because of. Yeah, it's not like not ABC and the movie's done. To him. He's not a conspicuous spender. Uh, yeah, he drives a, a BMW now and stuff like that. But, I mean, for a long time after American Graffiti, he still drove his 69 Camaro. He always wore Levi's. He always wore a, a basic shirt. He's, he's a genuine guy. George and Marsha's only important purchase was a large Victorian house near their home in Marin County. They wanted a place where friends could keep offices for little or no rent. And George he could get an a, the biggest himself. chair he could find. <laughs> and a bubble gum. I want some bubble gum. There's no bubble gum in there yet. Oh, but the big chair, his first big chair. I'm a big guy, a big yeah. chair. With the success of American Graffiti, George Lucas was suddenly the hottest filmmaker in Hollywood. It was now time for him to work on an idea that had been brewing for a long oh, time. Here we go. 
give me and the I think that, is this the last thing where they show the scene for the special edition, right? <laughs> I think that was a special edition <laughs> shot. Yeah. And I sort of gotten very interested oh, I'm giving in, you. in myths and mythology at that point. So I was toying with the idea of doing a, a modern myth. And then I thought, well, where most mythology takes place in a distant place. Uh, so I said, well, the only place that's left really is outer space. I mean, it's the only place where we don't know what's there. Um, and, uh, the land of Zoom magical. and the space troopers. <laughs> George then set out to star troopers. Star troopers. That would blend I'm send my star troopers to the land of Zoom. Of science fiction. Oh, there you go. Carlos talking about Carlos Castaneda. There you go. Joseph Campbell. All the stuff. I don't think George thinks there's meaning in the universe, except as we invest meaning in the stories we tell ourselves. Lucas borrowed from the great books of legend, but also from the westerns and Flash Gordon serials of his youth. George doesn't make things up. He he creates. This is getting serious, so we we can't uh, stories, and he's taking those old stories and put them in the most modern idiom we have, which is film. And the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. The Force It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. It doesn't have anything to do with special effects. It doesn't have anything to do with spaceships. It has to do with the same thing that made people sit around and listen to a storyteller uh, go on about Helen of Troy. 20th Century Fox agreed to finance Gotta hand it to George just though. Like, he's been saying the same stuff in interviews for decades. Draft after draft, all carefully handwritten in number two pencils on sheets of lined paper. Look at that. It's painful for George because... It's the raw pages of the drafts. I wonder if any of that will be in the in the museum when it's done in the Lucas Museum. They'll just be like a notebook paper section. <laughs> I'll pass out and knock over all the displays. <gasps> Star Wars was I the story nothing. of a rebellion against a tyrannical government, and it was set in another galaxy. At one point, Lucas had a 200-page script. So long, he decided to divide it up. The first act became the original Star Wars. The rest of the script eventually became the next two movies of the trilogy. Is that so true? A lot of my motivation from then on was not only <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm a certain point of view, Jason. <laughs> oh no, it's some Lee Brackett. The final screenplay was ready and production of the film began in Tunisia. A few weeks later, everyone moved to studios in London. The three lead actors were American, but the production team was British. And they were, to say the least, skeptical about the film. The British crew thought that we were all out of our minds. Uh, they just thought it was uh, ludicrous and stupid. Just, just, yeah, more Harrison Ford mumbling it through his goatee. Some of the British crew presented this young, bearded, hotshot American who wore blue jeans and sneakers. That's why we love him. <laughs> <laughs> the bearded hotshot American in blue jeans and sneakers. Yeah. He did nothing to bolster his authority. I'm not sure exactly which journalist, but he came and visited the set and after three days said, which one is the director? You know, George always seemed to be able to get somebody else to sort of speak on his, like a translator. 
from sort of the non-speak to the speak, which was kind of a little bit what his wife was. But the actors had a blast on the set. That's why we named it Blast Points. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, 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 The mic was in picture. The mic was in picture. I always wonder how much more of this behind the scenes, like a new hope footage, is out there. There's, there's got to be so much of it. There's got to be. did have a problem with George's script. I did tell George one time uh, that you could type this shit, but you couldn't say it. Wow. Um, there were lines like, it'll take a few minutes for the Navi computer to calculate the coordinates, which had to be said with great energy and, uh, and verve. Take a few moments to get the coordinates from the Navi computer. Kidding, the rate they're gaining? Traveling through hyperspace in like dust and crops, boy. Without precise calculations, we fly right through a star, bounce too close to a supernova, and then it injured so real quick, wouldn't it? What's that flashing? Lucas they cut it out right before, what's that flashing? the right actors. <laughs> once they were on the set... He had little to say to them. Faster and more intense was the only direction we ever got. And when he lost his voice, which took us days to find out that it actually occurred, we were going to get him a little bored with a horn that said faster and more intense. <laughs> what did George Lucas sound like when he lost his voice? Just breath coming out. <laughs> <laughs> that he doesn't like actors, that he doesn't appreciate the contribution that they make. It's just that it's, that's not George's favorite part of the job, shooting a movie. The pressures on Lucas during the filming were enormous. The British crew refused to work overtime, so the film was quickly behind schedule. They were also over budget. In the final days in England, Lucas had three units filming simultaneously on the same set. A madhouse by Hollywood standards. I had to reshoot the entire. Oh, wait, here's a question: Time travel. Do you go to the set of A New Hope, or do you go to George and Marcia's wedding? Well, I would go to the set of A New Hope. Because George and Marcia are still there, right? It's the best of everything. I would be really curious about the pre the pre Star Wars era, though. That's fine. You can go to the wedding. I'm going to go to the set of New Hope. Yeah, then we can talk later and. Compare notes. We can compare time travel notes. Okay. It was like combat shooting a lot of it, too, because we had no time, because there was no budget. By the time Lucas arrived back in California, he was exhausted. His special effects company, Industrial Light and Magic, had accomplished virtually nothing in his absence, though they did manage to spend a million dollars. It was very, very difficult. I had some very, very tough times. The lowest point was when I came back, I'd fired oh, my editor. I had to reassemble the movie. Are they going to mention Don, John Dykstra? Is it John Dykstra going to come on the screen and underneath his name, <laughs> Enemy? Went down to ILM and they didn't have fired, it's going to say under his seven name. shots, all of which were horrible. And I came back and, you know, I thought I would, I, uh, this is it. You know, I've really gotten myself into a mess that I'll never get myself out of. Lucas took personal control of the special effects. And because he had fired his first editor, he convinced his wife, Marsha, to yeah, you help gotta out. You've got to say, in 2002, you really were married to somebody nobody was talking was about Marsha Lucas in 2002. Mm-hmm. Well, and you can see here, George doesn't even want to talk about Marsha in 2002. Yeah, I mean, we argued a lot. 
we, we didn't have the same taste, really. And it was interesting to hear another point of view. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, friction because much of the time I wanted to do it my way. For the next six months, George worked 16-hour days with no days off. During that time, ILM designed an entirely new computer-controlled camera system that gave the space battles the fast pace Lucas envisioned. Yeah, is that true, too? <laughs> it, did, it, didn't, it didn't happen until the end there. Uh, John Dykstra. <laughs> oh my god, Dennis Murin just showed up and his hair looks like it's trying to leave his head. That was a jump scare. Dennis <laughs> this, the, the, the transition phase as Dennis Murin's hair is migrating to the to the next dimension. <laughs> I swear there could be a haunted house and Dennis Murin could pop out from behind a corner. <laughs> you could do an entire haunted house and everything in it is just different eras of, of Dennis Murin. <laughs> Lucas also did not want the sound in this movie to seem manufactured. I love Dennis Murin so much. He I know. He's like wizard Dennis Murin. He wanted something new and original. He knew that oh, would take time Mad to develop. BB. They gave me a, a tape recorder and a microphone and... And that began the adventure uh, of Star Wars. That began the adventure of Star Wars. I never get tired of seeing him hit the steel cables. I spent a year just roaming about recording things for them. The movie then needed music at Steven Spielberg's you know, suggestion. It's like, remember in Revenge of the Sith when at the beginning they show Obi-Wan and... and Anakin flying in their ships like in unison like to show how in sync they are at that point in this documentary like going into Attack of the Clones I don't know if you noticed but it's like Ben Burt and George Lucas are like dressed the same with like the, <laughs> the like button up shirt under the like sweater so it's like showing how much they're in sync working on Attack of the Clones George Lucas finished a rough cut of Star Wars in early 1977 and invited his friends to screen it the directors Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg among them. See, this is the Fablemans too. This is a, a very dramatic Most part the in the Fablemen. <laughs> the battle sequences were just old movie footage of World War II aerial combat. It was, as Lucas put it, a very funky cut. You're screening this movie for your friends, and what do they say? The old famous screening. Well, I showed it to a group of my friends, some of who just thought it was. You know, felt sorry for me and said, oh, gee, that's too bad, George. Some uh, said, oh, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And some of who liked it. And then later on when George and I were together, you know, George said, I think I've just made a kid's movie. I think this is not going to fly, you know, so to speak. And I said, I think it's going to be a big hit. And George said, what do you think it's going to make? And I said, I think it'll make 50 to 60. And George says, yeah, well, I think it'll make 15 to 20. <laughs> wow, are we wrong. <laughs> Even when the movie was finally finished, no one knew what they had. I, I often thought that if we really were successful, if this film really worked out, we might get invited to have a table at a Star Trek convention, and I thought that would be the ultimate goal. That would be, be Ben Burt's happiest day. Yeah. He, he was quite disappointed. It's like, I really wanted to go sit at the Star Trek convention. I because I had no idea whether it was going to reflect what I read which was this great vision, again. 
It was this amazing thing that he thought of, this, this other world. Star Wars opened in May of 1977, and within a week, it was on the evening news, in newspapers, in national magazines. By August, the movie had grossed $100 million. It went on to be the highest-grossing film in history and stayed on top for another five years. Did you see A New Hope in the theater when you the were, like, really little? A nerve. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. During the Do you? Did you? Yeah, because that I saw I saw Star Wars first, but I think it was the... I think it had to have been the 79 re-release you bring out Star for me. Wars yeah, I don't remember. I might have. I don't even remember if I saw Empire in the theater. Wow. And it doesn't fit our imagination. You bring it out just as the war in Vietnam is ending, when America feels uncertain of itself, when the old stories have died. And you bring it out of that time, and suddenly it's a new game. Also, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to watch Star Wars. Yeah, my mom still, still tells the story that... I think I've said it on the show before, that she took me and my sister to go see Star Wars, and uh, it was the first movie I ever saw. And she asked me, like, while it was going on, if I needed a booster seat, you know, because I was so little. I was, like, three years old, and I didn't answer her. I just, she said I just stared at the screen. So she was like, I guess he's okay. Because they had no idea if I was going to be okay going to a movie, because I was was three. She didn't know how wrong she was. No, he's not okay. (laughs) You should take him out of this theater right now. This is going to... It's going to be a, a bit of a thing later. Yeah, yeah. You should slap him in the face as hard as you can and rush out of the theater. Just get out now. Yeah. Rub soap in his eyes when you get home. That George Lucas's mind was bombarded with as a kid. Oh. Nearly three decades later, the movie is a classic, and it ushered in a new era in filmmaking. Star Wars oh, was a breakthrough film from James Cameron reasons. talking. Underneath his name, it should just say Madman. In the way it did Maniac. No one has ever seen it. Lunatic. Like Whale subtitles. It's too painful. The other <laughs> revolution of that film, I think, was stylistic, which was the future is not this bright, shining place. But I love Cameron. There's some interview I read with Cameron where what, he was a truck driver and he saw Star Wars. And he quit being a truck driver and got serious. And that's, you know, not too long after that, he was working, you know, for Roger Corman and Battle Beyond the Stars and stuff. Which is the power of mythology. Science fiction previously had not truly been mythic. It it didn't deal with archetypal characters. And George superimposed the, the myths and the archetypes on a science fiction landscape and created this fantastic hybrid which captured the, the, the imaginations of a global audience, catapulted science fiction into an A-list genre suddenly. And Hollywood... I love how serious about science fiction James Cameron is. I know, I know. Well, and here we are, what, 20-some years after this interview, and he's got people talking to whales in a three-hour movie that's the biggest movie in the world, so bravo. Yeah, blue aliens for three hours talking to whales and yeah, making over a billion dollars. Star Wars had just come out and they had just made a lot of money and they lived in San Rafael and I went to visit them. I was sitting in their kitchen and they had this ice box with beveled glass on the front so you could see what was in it. It was filled from bottom to top with frozen dinners. <laughs> and I said, you know, I think you guys probably have enough money now you could get a cook. 
And they looked at each other and said, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> He didn't go out and buy this whole documentary is worth it just to hear about the the, the see-through freezer full of frozen dinners. George and Barsha. Well, we could do turkey. Turkey comes with a brownie. I like that's my favorite part. You could get a cook, or you could eat Salisbury steak every day. I don't know. It's a tough choice. From Star Wars. George had to hire more people to meet those demands, and he decided to focus his immediate attention on building the company instead of directing another movie. I think that the I always Star really like the way Steven Spielberg says Star Wars. He says like Star Wars. Do <laughs> you ever notice that? I haven't, but now now it's all I'm going to hear. There was never any doubt in Lucas's mind that there would be sequels to Star Wars. Obviously, the Empire is still there. Oh, there's the big chair in the gumball machine. uh, Yeah, there it is. It's a gumball machine shaped like a rocket. (laughs) It's my office, and I want to go. My favorite thing with the gumball machine in his office, it's like like only a quarter left of, like, what? there's been so many gumballs eaten. Yeah, no, he's been hitting those gumballs hard. He's thinking about the Empire Strikes Back. All right, let me get my thinking juice. <laughs> Puts a big purple gumball in his mouth. <laughs> I'm going to go home and have my frozen dinner with Marsha. What if Marsha actually hated frozen dinners? And that was like part of the whole reason the divorce. Oh, it's all about the frozen dinners. Or that if she loved them so much, that was what kept her around so long. It also took another leap forward in visuals and special effects. One of the things that happened over the films oh, is they Dennis got Mirren. more creative. The vision became bigger. And instead of just doing things in outer space or in, on Tatooine in the desert planet, we were suddenly on a, you know, on an ice field. Do you ever just watch The Empire Strikes Back, especially the Battle of Hoth, and just think about how insane it is? Every time. It's, just, it's bonkers. Yeah, just ridiculous nonsense. It's the best. I, lo- I love the, f- the fact that you can just pull up the Battle of Hoth in 4K anytime you want on Disney Plus if you just need a quick fix. Well, I always wonder why people don't all scream like I do. Empire is the best. I want Empire. Yeah, because there's Return of the Jedi. <laughs> you had you. There were three years you could scream that maybe. Then Return of the Jedi came out. <laughs> it's just a solid personal movie that manages to be fun and also manages to touch you on a human level like no other Star Wars movie has since. I am the father. George Lucas had taken a financial gamble when he invented his <laughs> It more than paid off. <laughs> This, yeah, did this come out in the weird in between when the... This is post-special edition. Is this before they fixed the scream? That's all there was. There was only the scream. Yeah, so we're in the scream. There, Lucas dreamed of building a headquarters for his company and a new kind of film community. He called it Skywalker Ranch. 
George had this vision of creating a and film a place complex where Gabe Bott and Jason Gibner will never be allowed to go. We could dress up like cows, <laughs> like a horse, like a horse suit. Yeah, like in Top Secret, like in Top Secret. Yeah, we could just be a cow. <laughs> we could probably get pretty close before they noticed. I'm, I'm all for it. Where the shot? Do it. Frustrated architect. He sketched all the rough plans for the buildings. He also typically paid enormous attention to the details. He always liked the buildings. He still is. I think he loves architecture and building and remodeling things more almost than he does filming. I, well, I, I think he probably enjoys it more, really. Modeled after a Victorian ranch and winery, the ranch was built to house offices, a library with 12,000 volumes, and very high-tech post-production facilities. Skywalker Ranch is probably the only place in the world where a filmmaker can go and be in a Disneyland built for filmmakers. I mean, it's the size of Disneyland. It's got everything possible that you could ever want, every toy, every trick, every new cutting-edge tool. Skywalker Sound, and they're doing Phantom Menace. Oh, my God, Frank Marshall. Dr. Fantasy in person. Yeah, why does it say Dr. Fantasy under his name instead? I think that George feels that here in Hollywood or L.A. that there are too many people that don't know how to make a movie telling you how to make your movie. And uh, he doesn't like that kind of I think of we'd have to dress up as a cow placed upon because him, at least. I think if you, you get to that gate at Skywalker yeah, I Ranch, so. I've created a film every center, single day a film we're on the top of the list of people not allowed in. interested in movies than it is in the business side of things. And the movies I make aren't influenced by people in Hollywood. Uh, it's independent of the studios. Working and living in the hills, rarely going to Los Angeles or New York, bucking the Hollywood system. Yeah, all this and you has know, given they were, so right now, folks, they're showing a picture of George's desk at Skywalker Ranch. Notice there was uh, a Mickey Mouse sitting on his desk. Do you see that? No, I was looking for the gumball machine, and it wasn't there. But the chair's still really big. Yeah. And uh, so if you don't live in Southern California, you know, you're a recluse, you're Howard Hughes, you're Stanley Kubrick. And it's not fair. George is not that way at all. And uh, I don't, never saw George as shy. He has tremendously strong opinions. He's very focused. Once he gets something into his mind, it's the only way he'll look at it. I mean, George will not look at it. It's just it's It's a tiny little pumpkin. Maybe it's Halloween time. Feeling festive. No, or maybe, maybe you know, I gotta write. I gotta do some writing. I need my lucky pumpkin. Lucas was building the ranch. He was also expanding Lucas Film. In addition to movies and merchandising, the company was branching out into computer graphics and video games. By 1983, employees in the company numbered in the hundreds. Max Rebo. Although George never fancied yeah, himself. Yeah, we showing uh, the ILM creature shop for Return of the Jedi, something. And like his father, he took a small-town, cautious approach to running the business. His instinct I was Don Rickles at first. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so why did they have Don He's Rickles on here? Money. He just blamed values, uh, doing things well and doing them efficiently. He's not in favor of a lot of grandiose spending. Home life for the Lucases was also undergoing huge changes. George and Marcia had always planned to have children, but they were unable to. So in 1981, they adopted a baby girl and named her Amanda. The moment I saw her, my life was completely different. You know, she was like four hours old and 
holding her in my arms. I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. It's just suddenly she was the most important thing in my life, not movies. Why? I don't know why. I mean, it was magic. It was truly magic. I mean, it was one of those little moments that you just can't understand quite what happened. Maybe you could describe it like love at first sight when you sort of walk in a room and there suddenly is that person. It was, you know, like electricity. It was just suddenly I was just holding this little tiny baby. She was a little tiny thing. And she was looking up at me and she was just, it was just, I just said, this is it. I mean, I just fell in love and just said, this is the center of my life now. Lucas's world had suddenly become very full, but he still found time to make movies. In 1981, he and his best friend Steven Spielberg friend. started production yeah. on Raiders of the Lost Ark. The concept had been George's. He wanted to do an adventure story that would be similar to the old movie serials of the 30s and 40s that he had enjoyed as a kid. Well, you're all mad. If we go any deeper, the submarine will crash like the shell of an egg. That better be in Dial of Destiny. <laughs> An archaeologist uh, who would get involved in, in kind of supernatural artifacts. There is underwater in it. Yeah. So and yeah. Um, who was it's kind of a cross between a grave robber and a I hear serious this archaeologist. Good. Raiders, yeah. Lucas was the executive producer good. of the movie, and Steven Spielberg was the director. We have to get more snakes. You know what we really need? We need about, about 7,000 snakes. Let's reconsider this whole thing. <laughs> The filming Raiders was uh, arduous. The hours were long. The schedule was tough. You know something people well, don't talk about enough? The, the like, I think it's only like 30 minutes or so, maybe a little over. A little fly-on-the-wall documentary on the making of Raiders that came out on the, the Blu-ray. You need to go back and watch all that stuff again. It's excellent. Just excellent. And did a wonderful thing. I had made a much longer special effects scene at the end of Raiders and George cut it in half and in cutting the running time of the last sequence where the arc is opened in half it, it was so overwhelming and so powerful that you wanted to see the movie again just to experience that last three minutes whereas my version was six minutes I think George's strongest suit so it's something I've always found fascinating with the making of the, the indie movies that it's a collaborative effort between Spielberg and Lucas like there's the they'll both take turns at the edit and the final product is a hybrid of the two of them you know I always think you can tell watching them Indiana Jones sequels and they are hoping to do a fourth it turns out these two very strong-willed personalities work very well together so I would say we have to move on let's go the respect that the two of them have for each other is amazing and George doesn't impose himself on Stephen in a way that um, it gets uh, to be a problem. And so George, he has his opinions and he has his ideas, but he respects the director. But Lucas wasn't done with Star Wars. Not even close. Oh, here we go. Now we're talking about Return of the Jedi. Not even close. Production began on Return of the Jedi, which is the resolution of the relationship between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Go, my son. Leave Leave me. me. No, you're coming with me. I'll not leave you here. I've got to save you. 
The person making this knew what was up. Got start out, we're going to talk about Return of the Jedi. We got to talk about Anakin's eyebrows. When did the eyebrows go away? What, that was the DVD? That was the DVD, I think. It was the DVD, right. Which wouldn't have been until 2005, right? So I remember when the DVDs were about to come out. I don't know, because we didn't have texting. But I found... There was something on on the internet with like changes that were made, and I remember I think I called you. <laughs> Do you remember that? And I was like, the, 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 it was like yeah. the week before the DVDs came out, and I was like, oh my god, there's a ton of changes, and you were like, what? By a heartbreaking turn in his marriage, George's wife Marcia fell in love with another man, and walked out on Lucas. The marriage doesn't work. How come? What happened? You know, she was not feeling happy, and she was feeling, I think that. The reason she was not feeling happy was because I wasn't being able to spend enough time with her or pay enough attention. Or I couldn't see it. You know, I was very much in love, and just finally she just didn't want anything more to do with it. So it was a big shock for me, and it was a very difficult time. It was, you know, you think your life is all stable and together, and the people you love are going to be there, and turn around one day and everything's different. Marcia filed for divorce and won half of George's money in the settlement. It would take years for both George and Skywalker Ranch to recover from the blow. Marcia Lucas left her marriage to George Lucas in 1983, yep. and the divorce took a terrible toll on both Lucas and Skywalker Ranch. George now he had walks to, the battle for just to keep his operation afloat, and he says, he went into a seven-year tailspin. Looking, he might be uh, going down in flames, but he's looking cool while he's doing it with two, two Ewok movies on the way. So I simply said, uh, I will produce a movie here and there to get us through, but I'm going to basically raise my child. That's my primary focus here. Over the next ten years, Lucas was the executive producer of a number of movies, like Howard the Duck and Willow. They were full of innovative special effects, but did less than brilliantly at the box office. People look at George Lucas and they say, this is so successful, so unbelievably. What a career and the movies he made. And there were movies that you were involved with that actually didn't do so well. I love Cold-blooded. There was yeah. a movie he's I probably watching uh, of or that I don't like to Strange watch. Magic right now Some somewhere. He's, he's got it on in his home theater. They completely skipped over more American graffiti. It's not a big deal for me. I'm really in it just for the fun of the making of the movies. Part of the fun of making movies is working with people you know. Lucas often hired friends as his directors and actors from his earlier films. They, in turn, found a George who was more open and accessible. When we did um, uh, Radioland Murders, George had definitely changed, and he had changed. Oh my God, for the we're better. talking about Radioland Murders. Outgoing. Yeah, Success yeah. Had no, no stone unturned in this documentary, <laughs> except for more American Graffiti and Twice Upon a Time. True. Yeah, there was no John Cordy talk. No. Well, they didn't talk about the Ewok movies either. No, they didn't. By the late 80s, Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, became the top special effects and computer graphics company in the country. Computer ILM graphics. Provided cutting edge the graphics sure have improved since THX including Jurassic Park, Deep Impact, <laughs> and The Abyss. All of ILM's work on The Abyss is, is located within one 
scene or one sequence where the water takes on intelligent control, rises up, travels through the ship, encounters the people, takes on their faces, attempts so to nuts. communicate with The water them, takes so on intelligent control. <laughs> yeah. What are you even talking about? And yet it was the, the first time He's that so I know serious, too. that uh, computer graphics were used photorealistically in a scene to generate an object that was non-existent from the standpoint. It's very common now, but it was very unusual in its time and to have people interacting with it. But success didn't come easily or quickly. Lucas had invested money in ILM for years before it turned a profit. He also took a leap of faith when he developed other new technologies that were way ahead of the curve. Now, of now course, just showing the world has caught up Lucas and Ben Burt just Lucas sitting around in a prophetic. small room. together. He's yeah. a, he's and look at them. They're wearing, they're like dressed alike. Who was dressing like who? Someone had to make the call. They're just that in sync. Oh, they're not, they're not communicating. It's, it's just they're that. They don't need to communicate. They're just on the same wavelength. That's the magic of Attack of the Clones. It's Lucas and Ben Burt on the exact same wavelength. Can we be Indiana Jones? I gotta, I'm going to... I gotta rewind that because I think Lucas Steven Spielberg just called George Lucas divided into different companies, nearly two. And he 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 is a kind of dweeby Indiana Jones, and that's what we all love about him. It's true, and that's why we all love him. Put that on a T-shirt. It's very true. Nearly two thousand people now work for Lucas. So as well as being a movie writer, editor, and director, George is the chairman of the board of five very diverse companies. I think that the reason he so is So right now we have Jane Bay so talking. I like all the Jane Bay and content. And to change those hats yeah. with a fair amount of ease is that George is an extraordinarily focused person. He is totally focused on what it is that he's doing in the moment. Oh, what's this? The project that is closest to George's heart these days is a foundation he has formed to look into innovative ways to improve education. The boy who hated school... But I told you nothing bothers me more when people are like, well, George Lucas, he made so much money when he sold, you know, Star Wars to Disney. And people always forget that he gave all that money to educational charities. Yeah. Nobody ever talks about that. Yeah, because he's had those charities forever. Extremely engaged in what they're doing. With all of these companies and all these employees, Lucas still manages to keep tight control over all decisions. Once again, it's his way. It's distracting or when no there's way. Phantom Menace behind the scenes stuff. And now Ben Burt is talking to Kiati Mundi. Cutting to. Yeah, so where is this home video footage of George Lucas dancing with his kids? See, that's why, folks, if you're just listening to this, you got, you got to watch this later. But all of these business concerns are truly secondary in Lucas's life. His first priority is his children. In 1988, he adopted on his own another girl, Katie. Five years later, he adopted a boy, much to his daughter's glee. They named him Jet. They wanted a brother. I wanted another daughter because you know, the girls were so much, so wonderful. I had such a great time. And I have to admit, now that I've gotten to know the little lad, that I really like boys. I mean, 
you know, it's great to have somebody that understands explosions and, you know, <laughs> the really important things in life, you know, football. It's, okay. George Lucas, what do you like about having a son? It's nice to have somebody who really likes explosions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the main characters of my stories. <laughs> we rest our case. Was that George a good explosion, Jeff? devoted to his children and structures his entire life around them. We've always had a good relationship, and he's always been an awesome dad. He puts his family first, and he's not a workaholic. He works a lot, but he's home at dinner, you know, almost every night. He drives my sister and brother to school every day. Actually, he's around too much. He's always around. I mean, he's always coming up to me, bugging me, going, do you want to go to a movie? Anyway, we're going to get the CDs, we're going to have lunch, we're going to drive down to your cousin's house, and then we're going to go to the football game. Dad Lucas. And it will probably be cold down there, so I suggest everybody and, dress warmly. Yeah, and the best is, like, you, does he only ever wear plaid flannel shirts? Yes, he kind of does, even in his own <laughs> movies, or, or a raggedy T-shirt. They just hang out at home. We have Katie Lucas talking here now. Recluse. I mean, he is not like that at all. Like, we'll be in the car and like people will recognize him and start honking and he'll turn and he'll be like, "Hi, hi," and then I'll be like, "You don't know them," and he's like, "Oh, oh, hi." I'll keep waving and he's just so sweet. If we were in a car next to George Lucas and we started honking at him. And he waved. Oh, my God. We're talking about George Lucas and Linda Ronstadt. Although he does date, he had one four-year relationship with singer Linda Ronstadt, but that broke up because she didn't want to get married. I think George would like to, to be so, with sorry, somebody in charge. Sorry, we started talking about yeah, George so and Linda Ronstadt. And we're still recuperating. I was saying, if we were in a car next to him, if, we, if I was in a car and I turned over and George Lucas was driving in the car next to me, I would think that I died in a car accident. Yeah. Well, and you probably would die in a car accident in the next few seconds because you would just drive off the road and explode. But if Jet was with him, he might say, Dad, look at that explosion. And it would have all been worth it. 715 showing of Star Wars. Please have your tickets in your individual hands. In 1997, Lucasfilm released the Star Wars Special Edition, digitally remastered versions of the original trilogy with some new scenes added. Oh, yes. Yes. Special Edition, some new scenes added. You love him like a yesm. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful time the Special Editions were. Yes. Oh, the cardboard speeder bike costume somebody's wearing, yeah. We're almost coming to, you know, what it, it was late January, 97, you know. I'm here for the remake, man. It's Star Wars. It's Leia. It's light. In 1997, production also began on episode one, The Phantom Menace. This was the first of the so-called prequels. They're showing a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff, and it was all just Jedi Council and Jarl Poof sitting in a chair. I think we got our, our first little nuggets of Rick McCollum standing in the background, too, here. They haven't talked to Rick yet. No, he's too busy. This is like, you know, we were getting ready for Attack of Clones. He was very busy. It was his first directing effort in 20 years. 
I think the process of doing it was much more appealing to him now. And his children were older, and um, he was very comfortable having them on the set. It's always so cool in, like, Phantom Menace behind-the-scenes stuff, seeing Doug Chang and thinking how involved he is now. And it's just, it's, I don't know, it's old news, but it's always just so cool and heartwarming. People who have been at ILM forever, Lucasfilm forever. The way he had envisioned it. The movie has more than 2,000 special effects shots, four times that of Titanic. And the first photorealistic, digitally created characters. The graphics in The Phantom Menace are and interact really great. Top quality graphics. My blue friend. You'll have your winnings before the sun's set, and you'll be far away from here. Not if your ship belongs to me, I think, huh? <laughs> I remember the first time seeing the model of uh, Watto, this, oh, this little junk shop guy, you know. <laughs> and we had this wonderful <laughs> actor who was going to supply the voice, you know. That's... But I looked at this thing, that's, I can't that's something. I, thought, you know, I could be a monkey smoking a cigarette. Liam Neeson doing Watto. Hovering about, you know. <laughs> The hype yeah, no before the film Neeson opened when was on the screen. Juggernaut He's speaking the truth. media outlet doing articles and shows. The film opened in May of 1999, and by the end of the year, it had sold close to $1 billion worth of tickets. Clearly, there was a receptive audience, although the critical reaction was widely mixed. Some thought it was poorly Right now they're showing footage from Celebration One, the mythical Celebration One. This isn't good. The acting is bad over here. The jokes are horrible. I, I, what, what is he doing? What's happened to him? It's not going to matter because he's created something that nobody else has ever been able to pull off. He's created his own world, and he's made us live in it. That's remarkable. I retransmitted it just as you had requested, Master. And we decided to come and rescue you. What is this raw... I know, right? What is it? Raw Attack of the Clones footage. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, which he also co-wrote and directed. I want to switch that around. Is he talking to himself? No, Ben Burt's there. The movie will be released in May of 2002. Again, it's a family affair. Jet plays a young Jedi, and Katie plays the part of a purple Twi'lek. And Lucas is still innovating. This is the first feature film on this scale to be shot with high-definition digital video cameras. It will be an entirely film-free production. George has made a career out of anticipating what the next big wave is going to be and, and trying to make it happen, trying to facilitate it happening. And I think he does it just so he can have the stuff, <laughs> just so it can make his art better. And if everybody else can benefit from it, well, fine. <laughs> Can't help that. <laughs> George Lucas is the guy who makes THX, who makes the Star Wars movies. He has 2,000 people working for him now who do all this unbelievable digital technology, and it's a million miles ahead of everybody who's racing to catch up. But you strike me as, in many ways, an old-fashioned guy. <laughs> you know, what really sorry, down sorry. To George Lucas just drove by in a really old-fashioned car. Was that a Tucker? I don't know, but it was like chrome. It was like a shiny, almost chrome uh, car. That's sort of where my aesthetic life is. That's, where, that's the things I care about and I like. The technology side of it, for me, is not about technology. It's about 
widening uh, and expanding the artist's ability to tell a story. It's true. So, I okay. still have about five. Desk. He's got the Chewbacca mug. Is that a Jar Jar figure or a 3PO figure? George Lucas started telling uh, I couldn't tell. If the scope and the scale of the <laughs> it's story goofy. Changed, <laughs> could be goofy. It's my favorite dude. As ever. He has augmented all of our natural imaginations and he's made us strive, you know, and yearn for something beyond our own capabilities to imagine. He's changed the way we look at movies. <laughs> yeah, maybe they figured if they had Rick McCollum in this, it would just get too intense. While a lot of other people in his position who made all that money, the brilliant mind in the world, and enjoy their life, he's still trying to change the way we look at movies. It was a little too extreme with Rick That's it. That's it. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we did it. Okay. Yeah, that was great. What, what do you think? What have you learned? Well, A and E biographies may stretch the truth a little bit, but man, yeah, that was great. There's some footage in there I had never seen. I'm still thinking about the Attack of the Clones blue screen scene. Baby George Lucas, Harrison Ford with a goatee. It's really all, it's got it all. Mumbling Harrison Ford, Ben Burt, and George Lucas dressing the same. George Lucas's sister's hair. Well, I feel like this has been like a real experience. Yeah, they should. Uh, they need to re-release this uh, in IMAX theaters. Where's the IMAX cut of this? <laughs> 3D, high frame rate, with projectile things that shoot out at you. I want to see George Lucas's childhood friend Frankenstein. If we made a Blast Point shirt of George Frankenstein, would people buy it? Is that the, is that is that going too deep? May, yeah, maybe. Maybe a sticker. Maybe a button. I'm, I hope he writes a biography book, I Frankenstein. My my life is George Lucas's friend. That's right. Four posters featuring the stars of Star Wars are at Burger Chef. <laughs> We'd like a Star Wars poster, please. Hatu, it's our lucky day. It's us. Just buy a large serving of Coca-Cola for 49 cents at participating Burger Chefs, and a Star Wars poster is yours to control. There are four spectacular full-color Star Wars posters in all. So start your collection today. Artu, I think we'd better leave. Star Wars posters, only at Burger Chef, while supplies last. These last points, too accurate for sand people, 
Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. We haven't had any since like November. I know that's like not that long ago, but I miss them. When you get done listening to this episode, go over to Apple. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, write a little something nice about the show. And not only will you make us happy when we get to read it, it helps more people find Blast Points when they look up Star Wars Podcasts. And make sure you check out our website, lastpointspodcast.com. And you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And on Facebook, make sure you're in our Super Chill group. And if you want to support the show in a different way, you know we got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon. That is where we're going to be talking about some of the upcoming episodes for Season 2 of The Bad Batch. But yeah, that about wraps up number 300. And 41 here of Blast Points, the George Lucas A&E biography special, Creating an Empire. Creating an Empire and a refrigerator full of frozen dinners. Secrets only the director of Grease, Randall Kleiser, knows about. Now I wonder, is there a commentary track for Grease? Because maybe he just talks about George Lucas the whole time. Yeah, this this hand jive part, whatever. Let me tell you about the story. I went to George and Marcia's Lucas's house, and they had a big chest full of frozen dinners. And this is post Star Wars, people. <laughs> Only the content you can get in the George Lucas A and E biography. But we hope you all enjoyed this. We will be back next week with another brand new episode. So until then, everyone, thank you all so much for listening. Bye bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. sees the end result, then he works his way to it, and he goes through, you know, with his machete, he goes through briar, and he goes through quicksand, and he, and he hangs off cliffs with one hand, you know, and, and he, he, he is a kind of dweeby Indiana Jones, and that's what we all love about him. May the force be with all of you!